Hello, and welcome to the Calvary Chapel Southeast Podcast. Thank you for joining us for our study through the book of Genesis. The book of Genesis is an important part of the scriptures. It holds some of the most memorable accounts in the entire Bible, like the story of creation and the calling of Abraham. But more important than the individual stories within it, this book marks the beginning of God's magnificent plan of redemption for a lost humanity. Grab your Bibles and let's jump in. We are studying through the book of Genesis. We are going to be going through chapters 9 and 10 tonight, Lord willing. We'll see, it might be just a little bit longer tonight than previous nights. But before we do that, let's take a quick moment to review last week, which was chapter 7 and 8. As we studied through chapter 7, we saw the faithfulness of the Lord as he warns humanity of the coming judgment. His faithfulness to do that, his patience, as we mentioned, that he extended his patience an additional 120 years uh, to allow for people to hear the message that Noah would preach as he built this boat for, you know, another 75 years. But also God's recognition of the righteous and, and time to prepare their rescue. As I mentioned last week, there was and is today a limited number of opportunities for us to enter, as it were, the ark of salvation, enter into the ark of salvation, which is Jesus Christ, our ark. And we don't know how many days, how many hours we may have, but God alone knows that. And, but, but he tells us while we are here today, today is the moment where we ought to cry out to him. We also talked about that only those who obediently submitted to the grace and mercy of God through faith will find entrance into the ark, or as we mentioned last week, the one gate, Jesus, the door to salvation. And that's done through faith, faith alone. That was the testimony of um, Abel. That was the testimony of Noah, that they lived, they were men of faith. But also because God is faithful in all aspects of life, he is continually laying up provisions for us, his children, uh, both presently, but also looking into the future. We looked looked at how even in God's plan, he was preparing things in advance for the future animal sacrificial system. He was preserving these animals that he was placing upon the ark. He is continually despite the challenges, difficulties, trials that we are facing as believers, and I speak of this not just here, but around the world, the larger body of Christ, that he is working and, and, and working his detail and plan w- without rest. There is nothing that is going to prevent that from happening. Though from our perspective, and I certainly would say from the perspective of those believers in Ukraine and many other places around the world, it could seem like, and for us sometimes in our circumstances, even just thinking of George and Cheryl Barrientos, it could seem like God is not helping. But he is working his plan. And, and that is, we cannot forget that. I, you think of all that time that, that Noah and his family were in the ark and the storm is raging and you know, floating in this big giant coffin, as it were and how, what anxiety that may have caused them. 
but God is working his plan in every situation to produce good for us and to reveal his glory. And then as we faithfully and obediently seek and serve him, we discover the blessings of obedience. And this was the very thing that Noah and his family experienced firsthand, like right at that moment. The blessings of obedience was rescue, was salvation, but also a future hope. We talked about last week as we looked at that aspect as Noah went, went into the ark with his family and then God brought the animals into the ark. It was very specific in the language and it wasn't that like, Noah had to figure out how to get those animals in there. It's not like we have to figure out every way that we're going to glorify God. We need to be diligent and faithful to do what is in front of us. What God says right now, do this, carry this out, live the purpose. I will work the other details out because he is preparing those works in advance for us that we would walk in them. In all the difficulties and trials, our responsibility is to keep our eyes on the Lord. We would need to remember that he allows times of testing and purification to come. Purification in our personal lives, but also in the larger body of Christ. I think we've been experiencing that over the last two years. There has been a refining work happening even within the church of God. As God is saying, do you stand for me? Will you stand for truth? Will you stand for righteousness despite the inundation of the culture and the attempt to silence the Lord's church? He says, no, we need, we need, testing is good for us. It may not be easy, but it is good for us. When we do, when we persevere through those things, we will see him strengthening us, strengthening our faith, and giving us boldness in all of these circumstances. And again, we can point all throughout biblical history and even in recent, recent history, this aspect of trials and testings, this purification also produces a boldness. Think of uh, on the day of, just shortly after Pentecost, the day of Pentecost, there they were. Peter preaches this sermon where just hours before he is denying Christ, days before he's denying Christ. And yet now he's speaking with great boldness. In chapter 8, we learn that through challenging and perilous times, though they will come, God does not forget us. It says there in the opening of chapter 8 that God remembered Noah. It's not like he forgot him, but he looked upon him again and said, yes, I, because I am faithful to who I am, my very character and nature, I will now intervene and give them rest and peace from this chaos that is happening around them. He is always watchful. Let me say that again. Though we may not feel it, he is always watchful and present in the circumstances that face us, willing to extend his hand of comfort and hope so that we will not lose heart. And that, that is a challenge. I, I admit it for me. It's easy for me when times get challenging and difficult to forget. I'll give you one tiny little example. Uh, just uh, yesterday, I could not find a jacket. And it's a very specific jacket. It has to do with my chaplaincy. And just I was 
at my wit's end, and some of you know that my daughter Colleen works in the front office of the church as a pastoral secretary, so I was just lamenting like I, Sam looked at the house, I looked in the house in the morning, I looked all over the church, I was calling every place that I'd stayed, been the few days before, and I was frustrated that I had to go up to my office and, and prepare to study, and Colleen said, wait, Dad, hold on just a moment, and she just said, Lord, I know this is a small thing, it's just a jacket, right, but would you the finder of lost things, find the jacket. And it was in that moment, I was like, ah, how easy is a stupid jacket? (laughs) Derails me, right? And and how is it for you? How often do we allow small things to derail us? But God asks us to keep our eyes on him. Our peace and rest are not found in the things of this world. We are to faithfully submit and serve him who is preparing our home, our rest and peace, which is only found in Jesus Christ. That imagery of of Noah sending out the dove and it says that there was no place for its foot to rest upon. This is this imagery of us as believers. This is not where we are to rest. Our rest is yet to come. And he says that we are to be about his business and that that peace and rest as symbolized by the, the dove with the olive branch or olive leaf, our peace and rest are in Christ and Christ alone. For now, with the hope of eternity and our future rest firmly fixed in our hearts, we are to venture out now, as God says, you know, go out from the ark, go and, and be fruitful and multiply. We're to go out into this darkness, this world of destru- destruction and death, and to be fruitful, to make disciples. God didn't ask us to make converts. He didn't ask us to make acquaintances. He said to make disciples, which requires relationship and time and the truth of God administered in all areas of our lives as well as those we have contact with. To make disciples and help them discover the faithfulness of the one who rescued us. And that is supposed to be our great joy. No matter what else is going wrong in our life, our great joy is that we have been rescued and we are currently being rescued. That God is still working his plan to rescue us from the coming judgment. And despite the destruction and chaos that may be around us as it was confront, as Noah and his family were confronted, if you can imagine getting out of the ark after a year and the flood covered everything. Can you imagine what the topography looked like? Utter destruction. But his first response was to build an altar to the Lord and to worship. This is what God would have us do. Though times may be difficult and tough and discouraging, our first and foremost response is to remember he who rescued us, and to worship him in all areas of life. I mentioned that in 1 Peter 1.7, so that the proof, proof of your faith, our faith, being more precious than gold, which perishes, though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. We are looking forward. We are looking forward to that revelation of Jesus that gives us great joy. 
as Noah was before and during the flood. May we be people that live by faith. May I be that person that says, I want to I live by faith, not by sight. Uh, just a little, another slight taste. Uh, the mission team uh, that was leaving for Uganda today, they had went and got their COVID test on Monday. So they had set up to have it done through a particular organization, but it was like 200 and some dollars per person for the test. Well, they found out they could get the same test for free, I think through Walgreens. It says on this, it's 48 hours um, turnaround time. They're like, perfect. We need it by Wednesday morning. We'll be, be great, right? So they go and get the test. At the end of the test, they're handed a piece of paper that says, well, it could take up to 72 hours <laughs> to get your results. <laughs> they're like, ah. So Keith called me. He's like, I, I don't know what to do. do we? I mean, it didn't cost us for this one. We budgeted for the other one. I'm like, listen, you're asking the wrong guy. I am a planner to the nth degree. If you've been on a mission team with me, that would be the ultimate stressor right there, right? <laughs> Mike knows. He's been with me, right? What do you mean we got two days and we don't, we don't have all our ducks in a row? I said, but you, know, you, do, you do what tell, the Lord tells you. So they, they, they've talked about it, prayed about it, and they said, you know what? We're going to trust the Lord. Well, this morning they woke up and there the test results were and off they went. I got a message just about 40 minutes ago that they were on the plane prepared to depart for Qatar, um, the first major leg of their trip. So everything's going smooth. God's faithfulness. Our response to all of life is to act and live by faith, to worship him. That the power and the strength in us would be seen by others and would cause praise and glory to God. Amen? So now this is where we now roll into chapter nine. And if you'll read along with me, we'll read through this and we'll just kind of take it piece by piece. It says, then God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the terror of you will be on every animal of the earth and on every bird of the sky, on everything that crawls on the ground and all the fish of the sea, they are handed over to you. Every moving thing that is alive shall be food for you. I have given everything to you as I gave the green plant. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. I will certainly require your lifeblood. From every animal I require it, and from every person, from every man as his brother, I will require the life of our person. Whoever sheds human blood, by man his blood shall, his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God, he made mankind. As for you, be fruitful and multiply. Populate the earth abundantly and multiply in it. Then God spoke to Noah and his sons with him saying, Now behold, I myself am establishing my covenant with you and with your descendants after you and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every animal of the earth with you of all that comes out of the ark of every animal of the earth. I establish my covenant with you and all flesh shall never again be eliminated by the waters of a flood, nor shall there again be a flood to destroy the earth. God said, this is the sign of the covenant which I am making between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my rainbow in the cloud and it shall serve as a sign of a covenant between me and the earth. 
It shall come about when I make a cloud appear over the earth that the rainbow will be seen in the cloud and I will remember my covenant, which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh and never again shall the water become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the rainbow is in the cloud, then I will look at, look at it to remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. And God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant which I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. Now the sons of Noah who came out of the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the whole earth was populated. Now Noah began farming and planting a vineyard, and he drank some of the wine and became drunk and uncovered himself inside his tent. Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his brothers outside. But Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it both on both their shoulders and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. And their faces were turned away so that they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine, he knew what his youngest son had done to him. And he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants, he shall be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and may Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth, and may he live in the tents of Shem, and may Canaan be his servant. And Noah lived 350 years after the flood, so all the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. Having obediently and faithfully followed the commands of God, Noah and his family, they're rescued. They're now set free. They're given an opportunity at life as they are sent forth from the ark. As they do this, God repeats the words he spoke to Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply. And he says this at least three times within the passage, to multiply, to be fruitful. He is reminding them of the promise or, or the command that he had given to Adam and Eve. He is starting over this fresh new world. Acknowledging the Lord's authority, I'm sorry, as Adam, and, uh, before, as Adam before him, Noah and his family received the commands of God to fill the earth with image bearers. And we talked about this as we're uh, studying the first part of Genesis, that we as God's children are image bearers. We are created in his image. We also talked about the fact that um, Seth was created in or was in the image of Adam. So now that there was this added piece of their nature, we talk about that being the sin nature, but nonetheless, we are still image bearers. And as they leave the ark, they're confronted with this world full of destruction. And the only remaining life is, has been on the ark with them. They acknowledged God's authority and, and, and the provision and in their hearts, I, I, we can only imagine the joy they had as they're out there, out in the sunshine, out in the fresh air, not cramped up in this little wooden box with all the animals, with only each other. And that's got to be a stressor right there. 
but they're grateful for God's protection. Thankfulness and praise are the foundations of joy, and the realization we are called to participate in God's creative process is also part of our joy. Again, speaking of last week's message, this idea that they built that altar and they worshiped. But he tells them to be fruitful and multiply, and this is part of our participation in the work of God that he says that we are to be fruitful, that we are to go out and create others like ourselves, followers, people of faith. And I'm not just talking about physical progeny, you know, children, physical children, but we're also talking about disciples, spiritual children. But as mentioned before, children are meant to be a blessing. A blessing. What does that mean, a blessing? The biblical meaning of blessing is the acknowledgement of God's favor and protection or to be granted special favor by God with resulting joy and prosperity. But that prosperity is not just, it is partially the um, physical prosperity, but primarily spiritual prosperity. This deeper connection with God. Now, if you think about what has all taken place, think back with me, some of us a little easier, to the uncertain times of World War II. Due to the uncertainties and fears associated with World War II, and because many people were observing the the tremendous human loss and violence uh, of this war, Many people delayed uh, as they were sent off to fight the war, delayed or even were prevented from starting families. Now, at the conclusion of the war, and with this kind of national sense of relief or rest that the war was behind them and the world was a stable, more safe place, people started getting married again. People that were married and coming back from the war, they all began to have children. This is what we call the baby boom. There was a lot of children born. And we have seen this historically, haven't we, uh, throughout the years. I, I think, you know, in my recent past, a 9-11. After 9-11, a year after, there was this huge surge of children being born. And it's interesting that we see these parallels in Scripture where there's this intense time of persecution or hardship within the church. And then what happens? The church grows rapidly. It's that intense pressure. Having been spared and having endured a year of hardship aboard the ark and with God's blessing to be fruitful and multiply, again, I can only imagine the joy. It's like we're out. We, We can once again live with thankfulness and joy. They acknowledge this special blessing of children in their lives, and they begin to usher in many, many, many children into this clean new world, as we'll later see in chapter 10. But Psalm 127, 3 through 5, it says, Behold, children are a gift from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward, like arrows in the hand of a warrior. So are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. And this this whole imagery that, like, arrows shot out into the darkness to pierce the darkness. Children are to be equipped 
We are to equip children to be sent out, to be spiritual warriors, to be light in the darkness. And this becomes uh, true in the, in the spiritual sense, not, not just in the physical sense, but as I mentioned, this time of persecution is when the church flourishes the most. Again, when, if you to look back to the early church in the book of Acts, as the persecution increased, it just spread the people all the more. And as they spread, they shared this new faith and the increase of God's church was great. In verse two is the first mention of animals being afraid of humans. Uh, this becomes all the more important in verse because of verse three, since mankind is now expressly allowed to eat living creatures, part of their survival system would include the fear of man. Prior to this, all living things existed in harmony with one another. Uh, as we look at, if you were to look at the book of Revelation, the culmination of God's redemption, redemptive plan, we see that harmony, that lack of fear between the animal world and humanity, it is restored, that balance, that harmony is restored again. But what God is doing now here in this time with Noah, he's building really, in essence, a sustainable ecosystem because as mentioned in verse three, every moving thing that is alive shall be food for you. Now, if they weren't afraid of the humans, that would be rather problematic since there is a limited number of animals. Now, listen, I've tried a lot of weird things in my life. I understand it says right here, every moving thing that is alive shall be food for you. And it makes me think of, if you ever watched any of the um, Discovery Channel and the, you know, different groups around the world. But I, I, my experience is really limited to, uh, to Africa and a couple other places. But I think of in Africa, it's, it's commonplace to eat the body of termites. It's a snack food. Um, I'll, I'll be honest, surprisingly, they're, they're very delicious. It sounds weird and gross, but they're quite delicious. The other thing that was very popular in Uganda is um, locusts or grasshoppers. Again, they, they, there are cer certain seasons, they specifically harvest them, and it's an ex excellent source of protein. Now, again, you got to wrap your head around it a little bit, right? But I think of, uh, there's, uh, I wish Pastor Doug was here, he would tell you about it, when they took a trip to Cambodia, deep-fried tarantulas. He said they tasted like Doritos, you know. <laughs> I'm not sure if it's the seasoning or what, but nonetheless, here it is, God is now allowing for the first time the consumption of living creatures. But there's a limited supply, so he puts the fear of God. I mean, that's the best description I can, that I think we can come up with as to why. Now, also with these new instructions regarding food and, and their survival, um, comes rules. But some people ask, since this is the first mention that mankind is allowed to eat the animals, what did they eat animals prior to the flood? I was thinking about it. Now, the scripture is silent, completely silent on this matter. So anything that we say beyond that is pure speculation. But it makes you wonder 
if that wasn't part of the gross sin that was taking place prior to the flood, that they were consuming animals in disobedience to God's order of things. Which would align with the Lord's observation regarding the condition of humanity in chapter 6, verse 5. It says, And the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So that's just a thought in there, but it's not dealt with in Scripture. Allowing the consumption of living creatures may have been the result of significant changes as well in the ecological system. Again, you think about everything being wiped out. How long would it take for them to grow crops? To plant them, to harvest them, to be sustained by them. They had limited food supply within, within the ark. So again, I think God is making some provisions along the way. But in the same way, he's pointing to, he's looking, we're, he's looking down the lens of the future and saying, I have a plan. I have a plan, even as it relates, as we're going to get farther into uh, chapter 9 here, about the blood and things like that. At the very least, it provided for Noah and his family until they could begin growing and harvesting crops. And this fear of man is this ability to create a balance, a sustainable balance at the very least. But again, as these new instructions come along, also comes the, the new laws and commands. And the first are societal laws established by God. The first mention of it here, our first establishment of societal, saying there are rights and wrongs in a community. Verses four through seven, it says, though they were allowed to eat the living creatures, they were not allowed to consume the flesh with the blood. And the reasoning behind this is explained in verse four, but you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. Because the Lord is the giver of life and he establishes the fact that life is found in the blood. Now, we know from science that the, in the core of our bones is bone marrow, and it is the source of blood. Without healthy bone marrow, we would have no red blood cells. The body would have no means to transport oxygen, which is the breath of life, quite literally. Furthermore, without bone marrow, we would have no white blood cells. We would have no protection against uh, viruses against any types of infections because of a wound. Additionally, our bone marrow produces platelets, which aid in clotting and prevent us from bleeding out when we sustain some kind of injury, even simple ones. And finally, bone marrow is responsible for the production of bone, fat, cartilage, and muscle cells. So it is the very building blocks of life. God says, the life is in the blood. Our body is entirely dependent upon these factories within our bones to produce blood and cells which protect, preserve, and strengthen and nourish us. Life is in the blood. Which ought to make us think about Christ. 1 John 1, 7. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship one with another and the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sins. Life is in the blood. 
Our spiritual lives are in the blood of Christ. Without the blood of Christ, we are doomed to infections and injury and death. We for certain will perish. Just as God's words to Adam and Eve are certain that you will surely die, we will experience both physical and spiritual death. Yet, with the life, the blood of Christ, we can live. God makes it clear that the blood of animals was to be respected for in it is life. And life came from the Lord. But it becomes more, even more clear when God establishes the sacrificial system with Moses and the people of Israel. He is, he is preparing and laying the groundwork. As, we've con- as we finish up with chapter 10 tonight, it really is the segue into the next chapter of humanity, the introduction of the Tower of Babel, and then the introduction of Abraham. But all along the way, God is laying the groundwork for these, for the imagery that blood was a big deal. Because he says in verse five, I will require it. God instructs mankind that brutal, careless shedding or consuming of blood comes at a great price. If an animal took the life of a human, the animal's death was required. Moreover, if a person kills another person, the murderer's life is required. Since God is the author of life, the life is in the blood, then the blood belongs to God alone, and he will have his due. This is a good warning for us, a reminder to us. We live in a culture and a society oftentimes where it seems that justice is not served. But make most, mo, no mistake, God says, I will require it. There will come a reckoning. And that applies to you and I as well. It ought to be a safeguard in our lives that we would not forget that God is ever watchful. Not, not in some killjoy or, or some way looking to harm us, but no, rather to guard and protect us and to discipline us that we would walk in the truth. So these are the first two societal laws and the basis actually for the phrase an eye for an eye and a tooth for tooth, which is then established in Leviticus 24 verses 19 through 21. With the new food allowance, being able to eat flesh, the two new laws, God again reminds humanity of their freedom to be fruitful and multiply, but within these boundaries. God has always been giving boundaries. He gave Adam and Eve, like, here's the one deal. <laughs> here's the one deal. Don't eat from this tree, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Here's the one deal. Don't eat animals with their lifeblood in it. He's making it pretty, the, the parallel very clear. Now, if we're looking at verse 8 through 18, but before Noah and his family are released, God establishes this new covenant with them. A similar covenant he established with Adam and Eve in the garden where he promises the coming Messiah. But now he does this with Noah. He, re- he reminds this small group of mankind, this little bit of humanity, of his care and his concern for them. 
though his judgment is certain, he says, I haven't forgot about you. I won't forget about you. He makes this covenant a contract. In this case, a contract established by God and upheld by God alone. It's an unconditional promise. It's not dependent upon you and I or Noah and his family or any other successive generations. In fact, he says, this will be for all generations. He says, I'm telling you, I want you to make sure you understand so that every time you think about it, you will know of my faithfulness. And it comes with this visible reminder, the rainbow, the bow in the sky. Every time the cloud forms, with the smallest of light present, a rainbow is formed. And it becomes this visible sign that God's judgment had fallen upon a wicked and godless, faithless world. However, that manner of judgment would not be repeated. But it was also a reminder of all the things that led up to that, of his patience, but that his patience has a limit. He's setting a standard. He's saying, this is a pattern. Look for this pattern in successive generations. We are living in this generation now where he says he has set a time now to close out the chapter of all mankind once and for all. And he says, it is a pattern like I've shown you before. My judgment is certain it will be complete and thorough. Today, when we see a rainbow, does it spur in us? Does it spur in me the memory, not only of God's judgment of those who reject him, but do we remember the kindness of the God who warns us, the mercy and grace that is demonstrated in his patience, not not desiring that any of us would perish, but that we would come to this place of repentance and say, you're right, I'm wrong, I've made a mess, but that he's made a way. The rainbow ought to be that reminder that God is two things, patient, but not forever, and that his judgment is thorough and will come. And in case we misunderstood this, as we kind of move in towards the end of now verse 18, all of humanity came into existence. How it came into existence, God makes it really clear. The whole earth was populated by this one family. And this is, I think, one of the most clear communications to us of the truthfulness of Scripture, that we were, we are we are not a, an accident of nature. We're not a process of evolution. This was God's special creation. And then he wiped it clean and he started again. As he started with one family in the garden, he starts, restarts humanity with one family now here. But sadly, sadly, what happens? Like the first family, there's one fly in the ointment. <laughs> Actually, more than one, but 
And there's this lack of respect for the authority and the majesty and the order that the Lord has established. This moves us to verse 20 and 23. And Noah, he begins farming. It says he planted the vineyard. He creates this wine. He drinks the wine. He gets drunk. We have no idea how long this took, but I think it's safe to say that it was years. If you know anything about vineyards and growing grapes, wine grapes, it takes a while for plants to reach a maturity by which they produce a significant number of grapes that you could harvest them and make wine with them. But nonetheless, Noah makes the wine. No mention is made of why Noah got drunk. Someone said, well, if you'd been a boat in a boat for a year, you might have got drunk too. <laughs> I'm like, eh. But also nowhere does God condone it. In fact, the farther we get into Scripture, God makes it very clear that this was very harmful. And the result in our own story communicates to us that this was not, not only not healthy, but destructive. We know from many Bible passages that getting drunk will lead to all kinds of sin. So let me just clear this up in case you're, in case you're missing this. I am not saying it is unbiblical to drink wine or alcohol. The Bible does not say that. It does say that we ought to be responsible, consider others before ourselves, and then even if we do, we are to, to consume it responsibly, always with clarity of heart and mind. But nonetheless, there are many Bible passages that talk about getting drunk and the fact that it leads to all kinds of sin. Just a few little samplings, Proverbs 23, 29, it leads to depression. Proverbs 31, 4, poor leadership decisions. Proverbs 23, impaired memory. Isaiah 5, laziness and the abandonment of God. Habakkuk 2, increased lust and sexual immorality. Furthermore, you could say the irresponsible consumption of wine or alcohol brings about disgrace, deception, and destruction, even just right here in our one little piece of history with Noah. What we see in the closing chapter of 9 is the sad reality that the problem was not with God's creation or, or not in the creator. It was with his creation, the creature. This is the problem. The problem is not with him who made us. It's with us, the one constant. As Pastor Doug recently said on a Sunday morning, the problem is always us. When we wake up in the morning, the dead guy is still there. They were packing around some piece of him. Now, Noah was not a perfect man, and our, our, our passage here reveals this. He was, as we are, flawed and prone to wander from the protection of God's commands and love. And that's why he, there, this is a warning for us, that we ought to be in control of our mental faculties, and there should be nothing that we put into our bodies that would alter that and make us susceptible to this destruction. Now, sadly, Noah's son, Ham, he follows in the footsteps of his father. And it tells us that he, looked, he went to his father's tent, looked upon his dad's nakedness. And this is, in these, uh, in these times, this was the ultimate shame and disgrace. 
And it's not just that he, that he looked upon his father, but as the ancient Hebrew really communicates, he says he, with kind of this joyous disrespect, runs to tell his brothers. It's not that he saw, it's what he did in his heart and mind. And this is always the issue for you and I, right? It's, it's not always the action, it's, it's the intent and the motive behind the action. He tells them of their father's disgraceful act. A pastor once said that our sin looks much worse on someone else. Our sin looks much worse on someone else. As Ham looks at his dad and is like, oh, what a mess. Let me tell you, you know, my brothers, what he's forgetting about his own sinful heart right in that moment. It was his attitude, the mockery. He had no compassion or respect for the sufferings which might have led to his father becoming drunk. Instead, he took delight in his dad's downfall. How, how often do we do that? The downfall of another, the sorrow and pain of someone else. Proverbs 24, 17, do not rejoice when your enemy falls and do not let your hearts rejoice when he stumbles. Otherwise, the Lord will see and be displeased and turn his anger away from him. There's a warning for us. Ham acts as many people act today, glad that others have failed, that their shame is revealed. I would venture to say a big portion of Facebook is dedicated to that right? Instagram, half of our multi or media is, I would say, dedicated to the destruction of human beings and the increase production of other shame. As followers of Jesus, we are not to be this. We are first to consider our own failures, as mentioned in Matthew chapter 7, verse 5, before we give attention to someone else's failures. That whole idea of taking the log out of our eye before we attempt to remove a speck out of someone else. And Jesus, during his time on the earth, he taught us what compassion meant. He understood and demonstrated the compassion that we are to have for people trapped in sin. If you were to go to John chapter 8, verses 8 and 9, this is the speaking of the woman caught in adultery. And, and it says, And once more he bent down and rode on the ground, but when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus was not rejoicing in the fact that she had been caught. In fact, he was telling these other men, what about you? You stand to condemn this woman, but where do you stand before the Father? Now, this kind of respect and compassion is demonstrated by Shem and Japheth. Um, they demonstrated Proverbs 10, 12, Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all sins. They were there to cover that sin of their father with compassion and mercy. And this ought to have been the heart of Ham. Instead, he made a mockery of his father. And the consequences for this kind of behavior extended far into the future. 
Now, verse 24 through 28, again, Noah wakes up. He knows what his youngest son has done, and he pronounces now this curse. As God cursed Adam and Eve, Noah curses the descendants of Ham. Now, I want to be careful here when we talk about this. Noah wasn't saying that he was cursing Canaan because Canaan is the son of Ham. He's not cursing Canaan. He is, he is communicating to Ham, this is going to be the result. Prophetically, this is going to be the result of your sin. Your kids will follow in your footsteps. He was revealing what the heart of Ham would produce, a people who were disrespectful, hateful, and who abandoned the authority and compassion of God. According to Judges 1.28, Israel failed to completely drive the Canaanites out of the land. And the descendants of Ham then would become this thorn in their flesh for the remainder of their time there. The people of Israel would, would struggle with them, but also the people of Canaan would serve the Israelites to give tribute to them for all the days that remained. What we need to understand is that Ham's life is a warning. Our sin may have far-reaching consequences, and that ought to cause us to pause because that consequence may bring harm to not only to you and I, but to those who we love. And eventually, as we look at the New Testament, potentially become a stumbling block to salvation for others. I like what Pastor Doug says when we dedicate children here at the church. You know, that this is not saying that somehow we're, they're, they're, we're folding them into the family of God in, in that sense that they're saved, but rather that we're praying for the parents, but we're also praying for the church, that we would be a people that would demonstrate the love and compassion of God, that these kids, when they get older, would grow up and not be able to say, I don't ever want to go to church because of what I saw in the church. We need to be cautious and careful about how we are with one another because it's not just my kids watching me. It's your kids watching me, my kids watching you as the body of Christ. In contrast, the youngest son is given the, the blessing. Or more accurately, actually, the blessing is given towards God. It says the creator, the God of Shem, the one who would raise up Israel, the descendants of Shem as his chosen people. Um, one final note before on chapter 9 and verse 27, we also learn that the people of Japheth would later become the rest of the Gentile world as we're, as we're going to look at chapter 10, uh, 10 there, is Japheth's whole lineage now is tied to the known world outside of the land. It becomes all the remaining tribes of the Gentile world. And they would find their rest in the tents of Shem. Again, it's this beautiful prophetical picture, a reference to the Gentiles, you and I, for those of us that are not of Jewish descent, Finding our rest through the hope of Israel, 
the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Now, with the short time remaining, and it is really, really short, um, I want to jump into chapter 10 because it really is, the purpose of the chapter is stated both at the beginning and the end. It's to present a record or a genealogy of the three sons who um, are referred here in, in this particular section is referred to as the table of nations. So from these three sons, all the nations of the world arise. Now, I'm not going to take time to read through all the names, all right? I'm just going to spare you that pain and anguish. Um, I'll entrust you to read some of that, as Pastor Doug has said, when he's taught through some of those genealogies, to read them late at night and perhaps find some much-needed rest in the process. It's important to note that Shem is mentioned first in verse 1. If you notice that the, it, the genial or that, that first list, it's Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Since it's through him that the Messiah would, would come, God is narrowing his focus down. It's also important for us to understand that it's not a complete list <coughs> of all those born to Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Much like the earlier records, It's not a complete of every person ever born. It was merely the effective tool to trace successive generations which lead to important people groups and the most important person, the Messiah. Now, it is mentioned here in uh, chapter 10, uh, you get a little special attention to the person Nimrod. Why is that significant? Well, it's because through Nimrod, he would become the, through his descendants would become the, the two major power groups in the time of Israel, the Babylonians and the Assyrians. So God's giving us a sneak preview. <laughs> like, don't forget these two, don't forget this guy. Now he's described as a mighty hunter, but I think we, we misunderstand the language here because it wasn't meant in a good way. <laughs> it might be better understood as in, um, a ruthless tyrant consuming his prey. And that he was just a ruthless man. And, uh, and then his descendants were also characterized as, as this. In fact, uh, they, the Assyrians would be likened unto wolves, ravenous wolves, pursuing their prey. The closing of chapter 10 with the genealogy of Shem, it creates this kind of natural transition now into the story of the Tower of Babel or the history of the Tower of Babel. I was watching this little piece last night with Brielle about the Tower of Babel um, and uh, this, this location in Turkey, and they were kind of talking about how the, our archaeology was producing some eyebrow-raising things. Um, but in the end, they're like, yeah, but the dates don't match up with the Bible, so you know, basically the Bible's not true. And, and Brielle at one point in one of the pieces, because then it shifted to Jonah, was like, turn this off. This is nonsense. <laughs> and I'm like, yes, all right, it is nonsense. Moving on. <laughs> but this introduction now to, of the story of the Tower of Babel, God is narrowing his focus down because he's headed towards one person, Abram, Abraham, 
the father of faith described in Romans 4. So as we continue our study through Genesis, I, I pray what we're, what we're understanding that we're laying a hold of is how the Lord continues to reveal and fulfill his plan to redeem a people for his own possession. That this, was a, this is a story of beginnings and beginnings and beginnings, but always pointing to Jesus Christ the master of all beginnings. A people of his own possession to all of those who call upon him by faith because he cannot deny his nature. He is the faithful one, amen? The Lord of all creation and the redeemer of souls. And this is his story, his history, amen? Thanks for listening to this week's study in the book of Genesis. If you're ever in the Portland area, we would love to have you visit us for one of our services. For more information about our church, you can visit our website at ccseportland.com. We hope you'll join us next week as we continue in our study together.